Welcome to the Sum of It All Take Two podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And this season, we're revisiting our entire past seasons, one in each episode, sharing what we think now, along with new resources, connections, and opportunities. Transcripts to our podcasts are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. This week, we are revisiting season one, where we read Peter Liliadal's book, Building Thinking Classrooms in Mathematics. Oh, Audrey, I mean, there are so many things in Peter Liliadal's book to revisit, right? Um, yes. Can we first start, though, with how to pronounce his name correctly? Uh, I listened to all of our first season, and I'm like, I am so sorry, Peter. I messed up your name so many times. So we're now on the train. We've gotten trained by him. Peter himself, Liliadal is his last name. Audrey, I was afraid that you were going to bring that up in this episode. <laughs> I would love to go back and edit all my mispronunciations of his name. And may I say I was not even consistent. Um, and uh, I will also say that has been pointed out to me. <laughs> well, uh, Audrey, this book has really taken off since this season aired 18 months ago. You know, I was recently at the NCSM conference uh, in Anaheim, National Council of Supervisors of Mathematics. Uh, the conference was in Anaheim. And I'm standing there in a line um, behind, behind over 100 people um, to hear Peter speak, right? Like it was, this was a serious line. <laughs> it was a serious line. It looked like everyone was going to a rock concert. I was pretty <laughs> impressed. Um, so obviously some other folks out there have been reading Building Thinking Classrooms too and thinking that the ideas are impactful. So I'm curious, Mark, what's one thing from the book that's still like with you that was super impactful? Well, Audrey, for me, one of the things that I'm just continuing to think about is this idea of non-curricular tasks. Um, so interesting. It really pushed me to like reflect as I think back to my own teaching and coaching, I was thinking about like, have I used tasks like this in the past that, that could be defined as non-curricular? It really made me think about it. Um, and then, you know, I, I realized that when we read about it back in season one, um, it still felt a little theoretical to me because I felt like it's just something as I reflected, I'm like, I don't think I did a lot of those tasks during what I called math time. Um, and, you know, in the book, he mentions card tricks. And as a result, as you know, We've, we've been using a card trick by Marilyn Burns with educators. And if you Google card tricks, uh, Marilyn Burns, uh, you'll, you'll definitely land on that particular card trick. It has to do with a sequence of cards. And um, it has been so fascinating to activate thinking with this simple card trick. Um, and one of the things that you and I have talked about is even unpacking the thinking that adults do with that trick. And allowing them to reflect on how they're using some of the standards for mathematical practice as they engage in that card trick. So Audrey, I just have a new appreciation for these non-curricular tasks now that I've been able to get in and do them with people. Um, and what I'm still so, so curious about is how do these non-curricular tasks prepare students to be better thinkers in curricular tasks? That's a great question. I really like that one. You know, people still ask, me when I talk about non-curricular tasks, they say, 
how many of them do I have to do before <laughs> I can get into the curricular stuff? Like we're all about efficiency. Can I do one? Do I have to do yeah, two? Right. How many weeks? Right. And I think the key I keep going back to, and Peter writes about this in chapter one, is that these non-curricular tasks create situations where it is expected, safe, and socially acceptable to be stuck. That's a quote from him. Like these tasks make it safe to fail and keep trying. And so I think the answer to the question, if I was to answer it with another question, would be like, if you were to ask how many of these do I need? The answer is, well, how many are enough to create a safe environment where everyone feels safe failing and trying again and again? And whenever you reach that number, then head for the curricular ones, right? Right, I, I think that's great advice. And it's so interesting how when we do these tasks with adults, they kind of play out very similar that they might play out with students. There's, there's adults that are a little hesitant to engage in a math task, but when we do something like the card trick, it just, it really lets down those barriers as you're talking about. And the other thing we should point out, Audrey, is that you brought this card trick into this work we've been doing around play math. Um, and we've been going to different uh, neighborhood uh, farmers markets and things like that and making these play math pop-ups, which has been so cool. And Audrey, this card trick has been this huge hit in these spaces. We have kids, adults, all kinds of folks just trying to figure out the puzzle of it and really super, super engaged in, in it. And so I'm really even thinking about how these non-curricular tasks, you know, the connections between play and the type of play that we want to mm -hmm. have going on in classrooms, right? Oh, you're, you're hitting on topics that are keep me wound up for quite some while. I love these. Um, I, I think the more ways we can figure out how to message that this is what math, school math, math inside the classroom really is all about, the more likely it is we're going to get kids thinking, which I think is the premise behind all of this research, right? Like, how do we change the environment inside our classrooms? How do we communicate all the right messages with everything in our classroom that what we really want students to do is to think? I, I think that's just well said, Audrey, well said. Well, as we think back to the uh, many episodes in this particular book, and you think back to um, all the things that we discussed, what's something that's stuck with you that's been impactful? You know, you said uh, non-curricular tasks. I'm going to go with visibly random groups. Uh, uh, that is a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to second that. Um, and Audrey, you know, what's interesting is um, you, you run a few meetings in, in the place that we work. And... Um, You've been sneaking some of these things in yeah. to meetings, not just professional learning, that meetings, which is it's fascinating for me because I kind of like, I'm watching to see like, how is this going to play out? I get to people watch and see like, yeah. how does this affect the dynamic of things, right? And I'm like watching people and and it's great. I like it. It's it's just, his research shows that this, this has an impact on students, but it has an impact on human beings when you do something visibly random. Uh, so I just I just think that's so cool. And as we think about globally with students and adults, like engagement, well, engagement in professional learning or with students is more of a hot topic than ever coming out of the pandemic, right? Uh, educators are eager to reboot conversations in math class as, as students are kind of in this whole transition time still, right? Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, um, I definitely do play in the land of visibly random groups a lot. And every time I'm about to make them, I have that moment of hesitancy where like, should I just ask them to turn to a partner? And it's super interesting about that because I wonder why that pull is so strong. Um, you know, Peter, I've heard him speak a couple of times and he talks about how like in the text and when he speaks, like the biggest leverage 
that you could have on anything is to choose to do visibly random groups. Like he, he goes, you can't choose one, but if you choose one, choose this, right? Um, and and yet it's the hardest for teachers to do. And it's so interesting because every time I tend to use like an online you know, platform to scramble names and things. And every time I'm about to hit that button, I do, I pause and I'm like, should I just tell them to turn to their neighbor? Like, what's going to happen? Am I going to have anyone who like, oh, I can't be with that person or like, that's not random or, you know, who ignores it. And it's so ingrained in us to like, not want to do it. So it's super curious to me um, that, you know, it's, it's high leverage. I see the Facebook groups talk about it all the time. I hear people sharing out, or they're using flippity or cards or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like the implementation mm-hmm. itself is not difficult. It's not right. costly. You don't have to purchase things. And yet there are some barrier to really trying it. And I'm super curious about that. Yeah, that, yeah, that's that's true. I, I do have to say one thing though, Audrey. I think it's cool how you still ask the adults how many times you want to press the randomizer yeah. to, so they know that it's, it's random. Really so, random. Yeah, so I, I love that little touch with the adults too. <laughs> so I, I want to pull this back to students for a minute here too. Um, because uh I I am so the one thing, there's many things I'm excited about with this teaching practice, but the one I really am have been revisiting with educators over the last 18 months is really elevating respectful learning environments with our students with disabilities and how this visibly random grouping can really do that. Um, because I, I just really feel like our past and, and really still our current practices still result in our students with disabilities being over-supported at times instead of our students being able to be respected as capable of contributing to, to a group and being part of a group. Um, and us leveraging their unique strengths within these groups. So the thing that I that I just keep sharing with anybody that that I'm working with is like these frequent randomized groupings allow each and every student to work with all the students in the class rather than just sort of like this is your group for the year because they're going to look out for you and they're going to tutor you and they're going to tell you what to do and all that stuff. Instead of that, letting them have a place where they can. Uh, make the group better by using their strengths. And the other thing that's connected to this, Audrey, is just Peter mentions this fact of students are very empathetic with each other. And I think that's part of what we have to trust because I think, again, you've made this point, like it's some of these things are hard to sort of like get that tipping point of change. And I think we have to be confident and, and assured that our students will be empathetic with each other and that will that will help that whole frequent randomized groupings, um, and I just think it could be transformational in our system. Yeah, I agree, Mark. I 100% agree. So, so we've talked about some things that are still impacting us, right? Which right. I appreciate your points there. I want to switch to a little bit about some things we've been wondering about. Mm-hmm. Um, some things maybe we were rethinking. So, I have this noticing. I think we talked about in our opening you know, our our episode zero that like, I looked at a lot of the data and we, we collect analytics or the program we use collects analytics on Mm -hmm. listens and who Mm -hmm. listens to what our episode 13 on chapter 13 has far fewer listens than any other episode in this season. And it's like dramatically different. It's, I think if I run statistics, it would be statistically significant. Like it's that different. And what's fascinating to me about that is that like, 
we named each of our episodes for the titles of the chapters, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like it's like the title, like you just name them for the book, what the book has the titles. So I know you're already racking your brain. Can you remember what chapter 13 was about? Um, <laughs> it was one of the assessment chapters, right? It is. It's about formative assessment in a thinking classroom. So wow. I have this huge curiosity about why is it that folks didn't listen to that episode? Or why is it that that's not a curious thing for them to think about rethinking? Or maybe there's something else. But you'd think that over time, if all the other ones have like grown to be similar, that that one would too. And it hasn't. Um, You checked the link, right? You made sure the links were right. (laughs) Yeah. A whole bunch of mis- Before we go too far in speculation. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Thank you for that. Um, Since then, though, Peter's done some more research and- um, I know in that episode we talked about, he has these charts um, that they create for students because part of this idea of formative assessment is students having more uh, autonomy Mm -hmm. to understand where they are and where they're going so they can pick the right kinds of problems. And you and I talked for a long time around like these basic, intermediate, and advanced like titles. We were super uncomfortable with them, but he's done more research. And so he said Mm -hmm. that like now they're calling them mild, medium, and spicy, like as if they're like hot sauce from like your favorite taco stand. That's cool. Um, I think I heard Shout that, out yeah. to California there, right? Like Southern right? California totally gets that. So I'm super curious if, if changing the titles mm. on those like uh, charts matters so much to students. I wonder if changing the title of the chapter would matter yeah. for educators listening in. Like I'm super wondering like, what is it about formative assessment yeah. that this idea that we have this block where like, I get it, I do it, I don't need to know anymore. And yet there's some really interesting ideas in that chapter where it's, we need to really rethink like it's not about you teacher it's not about you doing formative assessment it's about this relationship between teacher and student and the communication back and forth about where we are and where we're going and so anyways i'm still wondering a lot about that chapter yeah you're just reminding me audrey there's we have so many loaded phrases in education and boy we have different definitions of many of them so uh i'm sure some of that's coming into play um uh well for me another thing that um is, is really something I've been revisiting since this season is this idea of storytelling and oral delivery of the task versus reading uh, and or reading the task out loud versus handing out the task um, to adults or to students. And, you know, what's interesting is that I tried this with the task collector task that's included in Peter's book with a group of adults. And it was, it was just so interesting watching, again, people who we're hanging back a little bit when I mentioned that we were gonna be doing a task and that oral delivery of the task made it so much like a story that people were just just in it from the get-go. Whereas if I would have passed out a piece of paper with the whole task written out, I shared that later and people were very honest and said, Mark, I would have just been trying to figure that out for the longest time. So I'm, I'm super curious about this idea of as continuing to try to get the mathematics to be problematic, not the problem to be problematic. I, I, I stopped for a second, Audrey, and said to myself, how many kids never get to the math when we give them a problem? And that means they didn't get to do math for however many minutes of that, that day, right? Yeah. You know, I appreciate you bringing up the tax collector problem because I tried that also with some adults recently. We were in separate spaces and um, you know, one actually told me afterwards, they said, this felt so much like a story. Like I just wanted mm. to lean in. I felt mm-hmm. like they're like, I felt compelled. Like I actually physically leaned in to figure this out, um, which I found interesting. And another one said like, 
I never once felt compelled to check my phone. And for an administrator, like that's, that says that's something. Good. Like I know Peter talks about how students are like less likely <laughs> to check their phones, but an administrator. So I, I, there's something there where like, there's something true. There's something basic in like humanity where like the story part of it gives us different access, just gives us different interests, gives us different um, curiosity. Yeah. You know where my brain's going with this, Audrey, is like if we can connect the storytelling piece to the, the cultural capital piece, if we can think about like how our stories in terms of the content we include in our stories for mathematics, how those can leverage the cultural capital that our students walk in the room with and really how that can leverage the things that they know of, about, how that really could be uh, an extra bonus to the storytelling piece there. So uh, I'm really curious to continue to explore that. Yeah. So since the episode, I've been rethinking a couple of things. I know we've had many conversations um, in other podcast seasons where this book has like filtered into that space. But one thing um, I'm rethinking is this idea of what size of change to make. So I recently heard Peter speak again, and I heard him say, small change means no change that we if we take on a small change, we're going to abandon it really quickly. And I was like, ah, whoops. Yeah, Audrey, that's a whoops for me too, because um, one of the things that I, I tell educators as I'm working with them, I'm like, this is about sustainable baby steps, just, just, you know, sustainable. So like, that's my whole mantra, Audrey. So like, uh-oh, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think you might be okay because you said sustainable. And but I know that several times throughout the season we're like, just try a task or uh, try yeah, it yeah. once or whatever. And you know, I if you don't get all the way through chapter 15, you and you don't think about that. And I think we've had more time now to reflect on the end of the book sure. as well. Sure. Like the idea there is really like education is a system and systems don't want to change. They are stabilized right. after yep. years and years and years of doing business the way we do it, right? And I, I think he even uses the phrase in the book that like a stable system defends itself against change. Like yeah. in order to change it, you have to overwhelm it. When you talk about overwhelming it, I'm like, oh my gosh, does that mean like all 14 practices at the same time, right? <laughs> right. And the advice is definitely no, don't do that. It's not, it's probably not humanly possible. And if it is, yeah, I'm not sure it's crazy. good for anyone's health. No. Um, but, but the first three practices mm. come out as kind of, with all the research come out as kind of the first um, framework in terms of what you need to try first. And like, if we want things to change, if we want the system to change, if we want students to start to believe that we really want them to think, if we want actions to change in our classes, if we want teachers to feel like they can change, we have to try all three of those together. The tasks we give, the randomized groups that are visibly random, the, and the vertical non-permanent surfaces are kind of like a package deal that you got to try right. together. Got it. So I don't need to abandon my phrase uh, when thinking about thinking classrooms, right? Like in terms of sustainable baby steps, we just need to do sustainable baby steps with those three parts uh, at the same time. Yes. I believe so. Like that's where, I, that's my new thinking since then yeah. is like, we got to try those together. Like yeah, don't yeah. just try the visibly random groups and expect to see system change, like do it with the other two pieces in, in concert. What about you, Mark? Is there anything you're rethinking from season one? Well, I, I, just this whole idea of autonomy and uh, that Peter brings into one of his chapters. And, and really, we hear a lot about the phrase student agency. Uh, and a lot of those things are sort of becoming more commonplace in terms of our field. Um, and I think there's a really, 
I continue to rethink this connection between variability and universal design for learning. Like even back to the mild, medium, and spicy, because when you when you mention those phrase, those words, it's describing something that if me as a student, if I'm able to acknowledge which of those types of activities, whether it be an ass, uh, assessment or whether it be a task that I'm engaged in, I get to make decisions about what I need to be motivated and what level of challenge will engage me. Um, and so that whole idea, and he also mentions that the mobility of knowledge uh, within autonomy and, and kids being able to kind of like make those decisions, right? Like they're making many decisions in a math class. But I really think that the thing that I'm thinking again about is like, we really need to support educators in, in really shifting their practice to see what this looks and sounds like. I think that it's easy for us to sit here and say, yeah, you should do this and this and this, but getting into the really how pieces of how that gets implemented in a classroom, um, I think teachers will embrace it, but they have to get far enough so they see a tipping point with their students. And so I'm really dedicated to thinking about how that might look. I really appreciate that, Mark. You know, it's making me think of how several years back I heard that like instead of telling my own personal children at home like that I'm mm -hmm. proud of them that when they do something I should encourage like you should feel proud of yourself right like that that, yeah. that change in language yeah. changes who has like responsibility and authority and I'm thinking like you're right on there with like what are those small things that we ch change that help students realize like they're not responsible to us they're responsible to themselves and that's this right. whole expert learner and autonomy that you're talking about and so I appreciate you rethinking that. I'm looking forward to what you come up with. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> we'll, we'll report back yeah, on a too. future episode. <laughs> but we could talk about this season probably for another hour or two. <laughs> At least. <laughs> um, I know it's seeped into many, many, many of our other conversations. Right. Um, but I'm also curious what our listeners are still grappling with, what they're, what's still resonating with them. So I'm looking forward to hearing more about that, whether that's on Twitter, when we meet face-to-face -face with different folks, um, what's still lingering with you and what you're still curious about. For sure. Thanks for joining us for this episode. In our next episode, we will chat about season two, humanizing disability in mathematics. Until then, send us a tweet with the hashtag SumMathChat. That's hashtag S-U-M-M-A-T-H-C-H-A-T with your questions and thoughts. We'll keep the conversation going there. Until then, we wish you great mathematical adventures. Mm -hmm.